You're very welcome here this morning. My name is Melanie. I know I preached last week, um, so you get me again this week. So yeah, I know what a blessing, hey? Um, We're going to be continuing our Joseph series. If you've not been around for the Joseph series, it's been an excellent series. I strongly recommend you getting on our website and having a listen to the series as a whole. It's been a great series to cover the life of Joseph and just deal with whatever comes up in Scripture. If you're not used to reading your Bible like that, I thoroughly recommend reading through a book in the Bible rather than pick and choosing the bits I like because actually then God gets to speak to you about a whole host of things and sometimes stuff we're not expecting or it's just a very good practice to read books in the Bible. It's why we preach books in the Bible because you have to tackle whatever comes up then. You can't think, well, that's a little bit of a sticky issue. I'll avoid that one. You have to face whatever comes up in the text. So if you're following along in your Bibles, I'm reading from Genesis 45, and it's the whole chapter. Um, If you haven't brought a Bible with you this morning, don't worry, I'm going to read it to you. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to sort that out with you. So if you're sitting there thinking, I don't own a Bible, and I would love a Bible, but we would love to help you sort that out. We'd love to recommend. We'd even love to buy you one if you don't own one, all right? So... For a Christian, the Bible is the greatest thing you could put in your hands, best book ever, and it's the thing that helps you grow. If you're not a Christian, it's the best way to find out about God. So this, this preach is called Family Reunion, and I don't know about you, I don't know what you think of when you hear the word reunion. Lately on Facebook, I've been invited to quite a lot of school reunion. I, I just can't imagine anything worse, if I'm being completely honest, so um, I have uh, declined. Um, but when I was little, my dad left. So when I was teen, my dad left. And, and uh, in my teens, my brother and I decided that we would like to meet our dad and know our dad. And so we made contact with our dad. And um, we had a day where we met him and his new wife. And we had a family reunion. Um, And in the room, you could almost feel the mix of emotions. So when you have a family reunion of people you've not seen for a long time or, or if there's been some kind of reason why you've not seen each other, there can be a whole host of emotions. There can be anger, there can be sadness, there can be joy, but they can all be going on at the same time. You can have a million questions like why, what happened. They're, they're all going on inside of you as you try to uh, get to know the person who stood before you. And this morning we're going to look at the family reunion of Joseph. We're going to look at the point where Joseph says to his brothers, it's me, I'm Joseph. And they have themselves a family reunion, which quite honestly must have been slightly awkward. Um, so I'm going to read Genesis 45. I'm then going to do you a quick whistle-stop tour through the story of Joseph, just in case you've missed it. So I'm just going to whiz you through it. And then I'm going to talk to you a little bit out of this passage. So Genesis 45, and I'm reading the whole chapter. Joseph could stand it no longer. Out, all of you, he cried to his attendants. He wanted to be alone with his brothers while he told them who he was. Then he broke down and he wept aloud. His sobs could be heard throughout the palace, and the news quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. I bet they were. 
they were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Come over here, he said. So they came closer and he said to them again, I am Joseph, your brother whom you sold into Egypt, but don't be angry with yourselves that you did this to me, for God did it. He sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. These two years of famine will grow to seven, which during there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God has sent me here to keep you and your families alive so that you will become a great nation. Yes, it was God who sent me here, not you. And he has made me a counselor to Pharaoh, manager of his entire household and ruler over all Egypt. Hurry and return to my father and tell him, this is what your son Joseph said. Joseph has made me master over all has made me master over all the land of Egypt. Come down to me right away. You will live in the land of Goshen. You can be near with me and all your children and your grandchildren and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. I will take care of you there, for there are still five years of famine ahead of us. Otherwise, you and your household will come to utter poverty. Then Joseph said, You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that I am really Joseph. Tell my father how I am honoured here in Egypt. Tell him everything you've seen and bring him to me quickly. Weeping with joy, he embraced Benjamin and Benjamin also began to weep. Then Joseph kissed each of his brothers and wept over them. And then they began talking freely with him. The news soon reached Pharaoh. Joseph's brothers have come. Pharaoh was very happy to hear this and so were his officials. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers to load up their pack animals and return quickly to their home in Canaan. Tell them to bring your father and all of their families and come here to Egypt to live. Tell them Pharaoh will assign to you the very best territory in the land of Egypt. You will live off the fat of the land and tell your brothers to take wagons from Egypt to carry their wives and little ones and bring your father here. Don't worry about your belongings for the best of all the land in Egypt will be yours. So the sons of Jacob did as they were told. Joseph gave them wagons as, father, as Pharaoh had commanded and he supplied them with provision for the journey and he gave to each of them new clothes. But to Benjamin he gave him five changes of clothes and 300 pieces of silver and he sent his father 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 donkeys loaded with grain and all kinds of other food to be eaten on the journey. So he sent his brothers off, and as they left, he called after them, don't quarrel along the way. You can imagine it, can't you? Oh, it's your fault. You did it. It wasn't me. It was you. Um, And they left Egypt and returned to their father Jacob in Canaan. Joseph is still alive, they told him, and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. Jacob was stunned at the news. He couldn't believe it. But when they had given him Joseph's message, and when he saw the wagons loaded with food sent by Joseph, his spirit revived. Then Jacob said, it must be true. My son Joseph is alive, and I will go and see him before I die. Genesis 45. To bring you up to speed, in case you've missed out on the... um, 
Genesis series, or you don't know anything about Joseph. So the life of Joseph takes up 13 chapters in the book of Genesis. It's a great big chunk of Genesis and finishes the book off. His dad is Jacob, and Jacob is one of the men of promise in the Bible that God has said, I will carry on multiplying you, multiplying you, multiplying you. He had 12 sons. I have two sons. 12 sons, that's a lot of boy. I tell you, that's a lot of boy in the house. That's a lot of boy saying, mummy, mummy, mummy. That's a lot of boy who can't find anything. That's a lot of boy turning on the taps way too hard, throwing things, breaking things. That's a lot of boy in the house. But I tell you worse than that, there were four women in that house. That's a lot of wives. That's a lot of alpha females deciding what they want the house to look like, what they're going to eat, who gets time with Jacob. That's a lot of boys and a lot of women. Joseph is the firstborn of Rachel. So Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. Uh, Stuart always says to me that I'm his favorite wife. I, I like that. But But Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife, and Joseph is the son of Rachel. He's the golden boy. He's the one who gets the coat. He's the one who gets the dreams from God where everyone's going to bow down and worship me. And to be honest, his brothers hate him. They hate him because he's got all of daddy's love. He's got all of the dreams. He's got all of the hopes, all of the future. And he's kind of at an age, so he's 17, strutting around, making sure that everybody knows he is the golden boy. At 17 years old, Joseph is entered into human trafficking by his brothers. So they tear his coat up, they cover it in blood, they take it home to daddy, and they say, that son of yours, that golden boy, he is dead. Joseph goes to Egypt, which is currently in that time the superpower of the world. Uh, He is a good slave and he works really hard. He is then falsely accused by his master's wife um, of rape and then made a prisoner. And then he is a faithful prisoner. And in prison, he's given authority, but he is left there for years. Beyond his sentence, he's left there beyond time. And then suddenly, he is pulled out. And suddenly, he is pulled out into the palace. Suddenly, he's pulled out from obscurity into massive wealth and massive power. Suddenly he's pulled out to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh and he sees in the dream seven years of food and seven years of famine and then he comes up with a plan. He wasn't asked to come up with a plan, he comes up with a plan. So he sees this vision, he says you're going to have seven years where you've got so much and then you're going to have seven years where you've got hardly anything and I have a plan. Pharaoh listens to him and thinks this guy knows what he's talking about. He's interpreted my dreams, no one else could. I'm going to trust him with everything. So under Pharaoh, Joseph becomes the most important, most powerful man in the land. So he goes from a privileged position in his family to prison where he is falsely accused and left there to rot, then into the palace where he has more power than anyone other than Pharaoh. What happens next? There are seven good years, loads of food, but Joseph is clever. So he's storing, he's saving, he's making sure that the people survived the seven bad years. And the seven bad years were bad. And they came, they went to bed one night and woke up the next day and bang, they were in famine. It was awful for them. And it affected 
all of the known world at the time. So it would have been people who were literally starving to death. The covenant family, so this is Jacob's family, the one that God has made all the promises over, their lives are in danger and God can't have that. The covenant family can't die out. You see, they're the ones who've had the promise of your descendants will number more than all the stars in the sky, more than all the sand on the beach. They cannot die out. They cannot die out in a famine. So ahead of time, God already puts Joseph in a place of authority, in a place of power, so that his covenant family do not die out. The brothers pack up their stuff and they go to buy food. They have no idea who they're coming before. They have wives, kids, livestock. They literally will not survive unless they go and beg whoever is in authority to give them food. Joseph was 17 when they last saw him, but now he is in regal Egyptian attire. So he is not looking like the boy they threw to the slaves. He's 20 years older. He has all power and all authority. He has all the might of Egypt behind him, and he even speaks through an interpreter. So he won't even risk them knowing who he is by his voice. So he speaks through an interpreter, but he knows them. He knows exactly who they are. He knows exactly where they've come from, and he knows exactly what they did. This is one slightly awkward family reunion. This is one where you think, oh, like that must have felt a little uncomfortable. I like to try and imagine. I like to try and put myself in the Bible, so I try to imagine what that must have felt like. And I think if I was Joseph, I'd have been angry. I'd have been hurt. I'd have been asking why. I would have maybe wanted to take a little revenge, have a little bit of retribution for the years that I spent in prison, for the time that I was away from my dad, away from my family, the, the times when I was falsely accused, the times... But you don't see Joseph behave like that. And, and we have to draw the conclusion that actually Joseph fully understood that through it all, God was in charge. That no one else directed his steps, that no one else controlled his destiny or his future. God did. And then the brothers bowed down. The dream that Joseph had when he was 17 is of all his brothers bowing down before it. You can just imagine a 17-year-old boy explaining that to his brothers. In my dream, you will all bow down before him. And then you see this beautiful picture of what God says comes true. And the brothers bow down before him. They fall down before him. They grovel before him. They know that he is the one who can save them. And then he reveals himself. He says, I'm Joseph. Is my daddy alive? I'm Joseph. Is my daddy alive? And it says that they are shocked or stunned. You can imagine, like, if you are one of the brothers, you are thinking, oh, no. Like, this is bad. This brother that we threw into slavery, that we told daddy was dead, is alive, is in authority, is standing before us. They are probably afraid. They are probably confused. Like, you wouldn't think that, would you? He was sold into slavery. You would not expect to find him being the equivalent of the prime minister with way more authority. You would not expect that. They are probably worried. In tears, Joseph says, come near. It's, it's like the weird, that isn't what you'd be expecting. It's the strangest picture of grace, where you go, what is that? In tears, he says, come near. 
And they have wronged him, yet he requires no payment for their sin. He forgives them, even though he has suffered for years. Because in his suffering, he has provided for them a way out. He has, in his own suffering, he has provided for them forgiveness and a way out. And then he goes a whole step further and he says, not only do I forgive you because it wasn't your doing, it was God's doing. Not only does he do that, he then says, hold on a minute, behind me I have all the riches, all the wealth of Egypt and I am going to lavish it on you. You will have new clothes, you will have food, you will have more than you could ask or imagine. You will have the entire wealth of Egypt bearing down on you. You who deserve to be cut off, you who deserve to die in this famine, will have everything that I can throw at you. It it just seems too good to be true, this picture. It is crazy, outrageous, ridiculous forgiveness. He provides a home, a future. He says you can live in Goshen, which is like the best of the land. It's the best that Egypt could offer. It was the bit that was reserved for Pharaoh and his people. It would have the best food, the best places. It's the best that was on offer, and they had reserved it for Joseph, for Joseph's family. Who does this sound like? Like when I was reading it, I said to Stuart, who does that sound like? Who doesn't give us what we deserve, but gives us the best? Who forgives our sin as if it never happened? Who welcomes us in in tears and says, come near, I've been waiting for you. Who suffered so that we were provided for? Who laid down his life so that we would live? Who then says, all the riches in Christ is yours. Every inheritance that belongs to me, I'm giving it to you. Joseph, so many times, is a picture of salvation, a picture of Jesus. He's the one who came, isn't he? And was falsely accused of a crime he did not commit and was crucified for it. He's the one who, when we call out his name, says, you come in. He's the one who says, not only will I forgive you and set you free, but you will have access to everything that is mine. It's the most outrageous picture of grace that that I think we would be able to find in the Bible. It's the best of the land, the best of the food, the clothes on your back. I will change everything. You thought you were going to die, now you are going to live. And we can be like the older brothers in the story. Like, in sin, in rebellion, guilty as charged. I remember when I stood before God thinking, everything you would throw at me, I would not have an excuse for. I would not be able to justify in any way. You are right, God. I do offend you, I do let you down, I do do things all the time that are contrary to your word. I do, when I hear you call, run away, I do offend you. I do deserve to die in my sin, I do deserve to be separate from God, and yet he says on the cross, I'll take all of that off you, and you can come. It seems to me like the brothers would be crazy to not accept that offer from Joseph, doesn't it? Like they would die without that offer. It seems crazy that they would go, nice offer, Joseph, 
but you keep your clothes, you keep your land, you keep your salvation, I'm going to go off and I'm going to wing it on my own. In the famine, I'm going to try and make good myself. It would seem crazy to us that they would do that. In the same way, it would seem crazy to us that with the offer of salvation, you would say no. It would seem crazy. And someone asked me on Alpha, like, like you, you seem to tell your story really passionate and be really, really for it. And, and I remember saying, do you know what? What I know I have are literally the words that will save your life. If I knew the cure to cancer, I sure as heck would not be keeping quiet. If I knew something that could save people's lives, you would not find me silent, not ever. And I know something that saves people's lives, therefore you can't stay silent with that. It's why I loved hearing the stories last week at the baptism. You can't stay quiet when literally you have been saved out of the famine and into an immense feast. You can't be quiet when you have been rescued, when you are part of the chosen people. You can't stay silent. If you are in this room this morning and you don't know Jesus, let me suggest to you that just like Joseph's brothers, you should grab hold of what he has on offer. You should grab hold of salvation. You should grab hold of being in Christ. You should grab hold of all the riches, all the inheritance, and say, yes, please. When he invites you to come near, you should come. When he calls your name, when he says, this is all for you, you should run into his arms, into his presence, and into his purposes and his plans. See, the future that the brothers had was bleak. They were going to have to watch their livestock die, their kids die, their, their servants, their household. They were going to have to watch them die. Their future was bleak. What Joseph offered them was a future in the best of the land and survival. What we get on offer in Jesus Christ is a future and survival. We get to live all the days of our life knowing him, being with him, and then in the life to come, we get to be with God forever. It's like the best deal ever. We are literally Joseph's brothers standing there guilty, but God says, can I just give you a big hug? And you think those two things don't really go together, do they? Can you come near so that I can hold you? Can you come near so that I can give you everything I always wanted to give you? Salvation is a, is a, it's a mind-blowing thing. It um, amazes me every day of my life that I'm saved. And I think sometimes we grow a little accustomed to, oh yeah, you saved me, Jesus, good job, died on the cross, good job, bread and wine, yep, cheers. We become a little bit accustomed to this outrageous gift that literally saves our lives. That literally means we have a hope, we have a future. The brothers went home to their families, to their dad, and said, guess what? We have a hope, we have a future. Guess what? We'll not be dying out here. Not on this day. We will go forward and our kids will have kids and they will have kids. And surely as all the stars in the sky and grains of sand on the, the sea, we will multiply and fill the earth. They had a future. If you know him, I want to ask you just a few questions this morning. And I want you to consider these things. I don't ask these questions not asking them of myself. Whenever I read the Bible and prepare a preach, I'm always asking myself first these questions. So when I say you, I don't 
I include myself in that. So in worship, are you making the most of the fact that you're saved? Are you singing, dancing, giving yourself to him? Are you behaving like you are one who has been rescued from death to life? I mean, I can't imagine the party that they must have thrown when they reached Egypt and realized that they were saved. I imagine every day of the rest of their lives, they walk around going, look at what we eat, drink, wear that we do not deserve. And that, for me, that's what worship is. Look at who I am, what I wear, what I'm called that I don't deserve. Worship that says, I'm amazing, I'm lovely, I'm, quite frankly, it's not worship. Worship that says, he is awesome, he is amazing, he is outrageous, and he saved me, is worship. When we acknowledge who he is and what he's done, and we dance and we sing and we say, we are literally those who have been rescued from famine into great feasts. We are not the ones on the earth who need to be miserable. That is not us. Because whatever our life looks like, we have been rescued. Whatever our circumstances hold today, we have a future. We have an inheritance in Christ that will wipe the floor with anything you can amass on the earth, in your job, in your home, in your house, in your car. We have an inheritance that will literally last forever. We have so many reasons to worship, it's outrageous. We have so many reasons to dance, so many reasons to sing, so many reasons to train our kids, to pull them in and say, let's go. We are the redeemed. We are the ones who've been set free, brought out of slavery into, we got taken from the prison into the palace. Man, if if that isn't a motivation to dance and sing, well... I don't know what is really. Are you an example in your life of Christian forgiveness? Or do you hold grudges or make people pay? This one's a hard one because I don't know about you, there are some people in my life that have done some fairly rotten things to me. But because I've been forgiven much by a perfect God, my only response really is to love much. Because I know that if I stood before God with all my sin, without Jesus, I would be in the most trouble ever. Because I know that daily, hourly, I offend God. I don't know that I have any place really to hold someone else accountable for their sin. Because I have a little bit too much to deal with myself. I have a little bit too much to get right before God, to get on with with God. And I recognize this is a really hard journey. Forgiving people is a really hard journey. But in fairness, the only person it traps is you. When you walk in unforgiveness, you're the person who gets held back. The moment I forgave my dad, something in me just broke. And my encounters with God, my encounters with the Spirit just went up a level. Because unforgiveness is something that doesn't look like God. It just... The two can't really sit together. So if you're struggling, if you're thinking, man, I am holding a few people guilty, give them to God and walk in forgiveness. Let it go and don't be held back. 
be a little bit more like Joseph and think, do you know what, in it all, I know God had a plan. It amazes me the amount of people I pray with and see set free from stuff to do with their daddies. I, I, I don't honestly believe that I would get to see the level of freedom that I get to see in people's lives if I didn't have a daddy story myself, if I hadn't have been through what I went through. And sometimes your mess and your misery becomes your ministry. It becomes the thing that you get to say to people, I know how to walk out of that prison. Let me show you. And you get to walk. A lot of the times our stories are there to benefit the people around us. The stuff we have faced, the stuff we have gone through is so that we can say to other people, take my hand and come with me. I've walked loads of people through daddy stuff because I myself have walked through daddy stuff with other people. It's, our stories are sometimes our greatest ministry on the earth. He is outrageous, he is generous, and he is so kind. You notice Joseph says, take all of this, have, have animals full of stuff, go home, have five sets of new clothes. He is lavish and over the top. Are you? Am I? Would people look at me and say, she is lavish, she is over the top, she is outrageously generous? And I don't mean going into debt and being silly with it. I mean with what you have, are you generous? Are you kind? Are you outrageous? With what you have. I know Stu was sharing about the finances and there are so many people in this room with what they have that they are outrageous with. And I know there's something in the heart of God that loves outrageous giving that just loves it when we look a little like him, when we behave a little bit like our dad, there is something. I know with our kids, when they behave a little like us, we both smile. There is something that is lovely seeing yourself being the best bits, obviously, like some of it. Um, He is outrageous, he is generous, he is kind. Joseph was outrageous, generous, and kind. Ask yourself the question, am I? If you're married, ask your husband or wife. If you have kids, ask them. If you have close friends around you, ask them. Say, am I outrageous, generous, and kind? Be honest with me, because I want to grow in it. We need more of the Spirit in our lives in order to behave like Joseph behaved. We need more of God living and active in us in order to behave like this. I often read the life of Joseph and think, and like he's one of the people in the Bible that I think I would like to be more like. I'd like to be more I'd like to imitate him as he imitates Christ. I'd like to look a lot more like him in how he deals with what goes on in his life. And I imagine that he was fully convinced that God was with him, fully convinced that God spoke, fully convinced that God directed his steps. I don't know about you, I wanna be more like that. I want to be someone who is fully convinced that what God says in this is true, that what he has spoken over my life is true, that no matter what my circumstances are, what he says is the thing that matters. So I would suggest if you don't know how to get yourself filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can encounter God more, ask someone in your life group. If you're not in a life group, get in one. Just 
go and find George and John and say, I'm not in a life group, I am effectively homeless, please help me. Find me a nice home where I can be, I can eat, and I can chat, and I can pray with people. And I can ask someone, can you help me get filled with the Holy Spirit? Because I think I've got myself a blockage, and I'm finding that I'm not becoming more like Christ because of it. Because if we're not full of God, the person we're becoming more like is us. If we're full of God, the person we're becoming more like is God. So we leave him alive and present in our lives. Read a gospel. Get to know the person of Jesus Christ. Write your story out. Listen to some sermons on Jesus. Do anything you can to get Jesus in you so that then Jesus is walking out of you. Joseph, I would have had so many times in prison where I, you know, I imagine he didn't have much else to do other than talk with God, be with God. Joseph knew that the brothers intended evil for him, but that God intended it for good. See, Joseph could see the hand of God in his circumstances, even when they were poor, even when it was all falling apart around him, he could still see that God was at work. And it must have been so amazing for him to stand in the palace, realising that when God spoke when I was 17 years old, this is what he had in mind. To see the moment when the brothers bowed down. And this is what God was talking about when I was 17. 20 years ago, this is what God was talking about. Yes, 20 years, not two months, two weeks. 20 years ago, when God said that, this is what he meant. And he must have had to have walked faithfully in the sovereignty of God for years. Believing in his whole heart that it is God who directs my steps. It is God who is control of my destiny and my future. I don't know what circumstances you're facing now. I, I don't know what's going on in everybody's life. We're getting to a size as a church where I can't possibly know that. But have you forgotten that God has the final say? Have you forgotten that he directs your steps? Have you forgotten that he's sovereign, that he's always outworking a plan, that everything that Satan intends for harm, he intends for good, that everything you go for through, he intends to use? Have you forgotten that? Do you need to remind yourself? Do you need to pick up your Bible and remind yourself who he is and what he said? Do you need to get out prophetic words that have been spoken over you and remind yourself who he is? In worship, do you need to get your eyes on him and go, actually, this isn't about me, this is about you? Joseph is for us a brilliant picture of Jesus. Obviously, he's a limited picture of Jesus because Joseph was not without sin. So he's a brilliant picture, but a limited picture. We need to get our eyes on the masterpiece. We need to get our eyes on Jesus. We need to get our eyes on the one who actually came, died in our place for our sin, and leads us now into a hope and a future where we will not die out, where we will not perish, but we will live forever. We need to be permanently getting our eyes off our circumstances and onto him. We have for ourselves the most brilliant family reunion. Every time we meet as church, every time we meet in small groups, every time we worship, every time you stick on a CD at home, open your Bible, you have for yourself a family reunion where you are reconnected with the one who made you, with the one who is all-knowing, all-seeing, and quite frankly, just outrageously good. We have ourselves a family reunion that isn't awkward, that we don't have to stand ashamed, that we don't have to stand guilty, that we get to stand in the presence of God, free, forgiven. It's, it's just outrageous. So I'm going to invite you to stand now. I'm going to ask if the worship team want to come up.
And we are going to worship that God. We're going to remind ourselves who he is and what he's done for us. We're going to get our eyes on him and off our circumstances. We're going to remember that it is he who directs our steps. And we're going to remember that Joseph was just a man who dared to believe that what God said was right. And ultimately, everything God has spoken over his life outworked itself. And it might not have been the journey he expected to go on. But God is good, hey? Yeah, let's worship him.